This is the Machination Log for June 10th, 2016. I'm your host, David Paddock. To my left and across, we've got the original movie crew. Original in the house. Nicole and Ryan. (laughs) Yes. Both here. We are finally going to pop the Tarantino cherry today (laughs) with the least Tarantino movie in a long, long while. We're going to discuss Jackie Brown, adapted for screen by Tarantino himself, uh, based on the novel Rum Punch. Yes, by Elmore Leonard. Yes. Um, Has anyone here read that? I have read a few Elmore Leonard books, but not any of the ones that have been adapted to film. Other films that you might recognize, though, that are book adaptations by Elmore Leonard is um, stuff like Get Shorty, uh, stuff like Out of Sight. Um, Other other kind of slow-moving, grooving action films from the late 90s period. Yeah, he's got a fairly pulpy, silky style, you know, like it's, it's where the writing is, is smooth, but yeah, it doesn't it's get smooth, in its own way. It's smooth and cool without being, you know, like, like even, even when you have the action, it's not like gratuitous. It's kind of, it kind of moves at like a little bit of a stoner's pace. You well, know? I think that it kind of ref, like reflects the, the overall tone of the film the, of Jackie Brown as well. Yeah, I was going like, to say the film sounds pretty faithful then. Well, it's yes. cool. It's just as a side note, it's kind of cool. Like where, okay, it's, it's, it's a good representation where you have a, a, a writer who writes about coolness and like has characters who are cool, but doesn't like tell you that they're cool. Like the writing style itself kind of evokes the sense of yeah. like, yeah. you know, uh, downbeat confidence that is kind of ro- rolling through and the, and the writing style reflects that as well. And this movie, I think, Oh, once again, no reflects doubt. It also, um, most of you are probably familiar with Tarantino from either his critical darling Pulp Fiction or from his more recent films, his adventures into blood and gore, such as Inglorious Bastards and uh, whatever the hell, Django, Django Unchained. Hateful Eight. And The Hateful Eight where he jumped the shark, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> we're not here to talk about those movies because you guys already know why those movies are great. You all went to see them. They're like half billion dollars. They're not superhero. They're not Marvel, but mm-hmm. they are Well, they damn are still close. rated R, but yeah. they're still breaking in the dough. Yeah, they're making plenty of money. We don't, we don't have to explain to you guys what makes Tarantino's gore and dialogue and all that stuff great. You, it seems like most people understand that part. So we're going to dial it back a little bit, and we're going to get more into the flavor of what makes Tarantino a great director. And Jackie Brown is a tour de force of this stuff. And in particular, um, Ryan, I don't know if you want to be the one to take this uh, particular digression, but Jackie Brown was the end of the first era of Tarantino. Yes, absolutely. So Tarantino kind of, if those of you who don't know about Tarantino, early on in his, you know, in his 20s, maybe early 30s, he is a, um, he works at a video store. There used to be these, like, actual physical locations where you would go and borrow movies for a fee on a VHS player. We're old, so we used to do these yes, things. Yes, we used to do these. We used to ride our bikes to go do this. But he <laughs> It's basically work- the Best Buy Netflix. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine Redbox made by, like, 40 feet by 60, where you walked around inside of it. It's very cool. So, like, yeah, he was, but he worked at one of these, and he is a film student. There is a, 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 there's a period in the, in the early 90s where American cinema, what we call independent cinema. Well, it was an era when everybody loved a true independent. Yes. And then, <laughs> and, but that the, I think what one of the kind of features is, is that in early 90s independent cinema, there's, like, this sense that they are fans of movies. Like, yeah. these people are, like, movie fans and like the idea of references, like the idea of taking themes, ideas, 
and then updating them or, or having a different take on them. Clear lines of inspiration going yes, on. Yes, absolutely. And, and also, once again, kind of resurrecting stars maybe from a previous era that they had enjoyed also. And Tarantino begins his, his film career uh, with writing and directing with Lawrence Bender, his famous uh, producer as well. Um, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. He also writes and pens the screenplay to True Romance, which is a Tony Scott film. Another phenomenal action Christian film. Slater, Patricia Arquette, mid-90s romance. Uh, but then he follows it up with Jackie Brown. And this movie is what, 1997? 97, yes. And there is a six-year gap between Jackie Brown and then what becomes really the second part of his career, which we are promised not to deal with. But Kill Bill Part 1 is released in 2003. But that, core, that kind of core group of movies... Uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, True Romance, and Jackie Brown uh, is the flavor, the tone of those movies are just very, very different than the his career post Kill Bill. Yeah, and uh, once again, let's kind of like ruminate about this a little bit because, like I said, I think most everyone is familiar with you know the second half of his career, but we're gonna like kind of. Meditate and Pulp Fiction. And, Everyone's pretty familiar with Pulp absolutely. Fiction. Absolutely. And if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs or Jackie Brown, I think that you will find that they are more like Pulp Fiction, but like more so. They're just, uh, they have their own style and, and feel to them that is uh, just just divorced from his later uh, collection of films and his later style. Yeah, he took six years off, watched Battle Royale a couple more times, <laughs> and uh, started off on his second, much more profitable journey. But uh, he built up critical cred Making movies like Jackie Brown first. Well, and it should also be said that during that six-year spread, he tried to get Inglorious Bastards, Bastards made. Yeah, as well. Oh, that was right. Yeah. That was a this was that was a twelve-year effort for him to get Inglorious Bastards completed, and so that's kind of like that where that seeming period of of non-work is actually some difficulties because you know it turns out marshalling forty million dollars to make a project, uh, for, you know, for two and a half hours of screen time is actually an endeavor. It's a tough thing oh, yeah. to do. Well, and yeah, you can't just revive Travolta over and over again. It's <laughs> It's a challenging thing yeah. to do, but it's Tarantino's path is always interesting, and he always seems, other than in interviews where he manages to make an ass of himself, pretty much constantly. Yeah, don't, um, just don't watch Tarantino <laughs> interviews. He's he's barely love Tarantino yeah. for the idea, not for the man. Yeah, but um, but it's it's great because he the reason why he's a household name in indie cinema. In fact, for the most part, I I sort of credit the term indie to him. He's got. Pulp Fiction was one of the best-reviewed movies of its era, and he basically s took that and applied it to action films. Mm -hmm. He started out becoming critically untouchable, and then, or untouchable in the non-Indian <laughs> sense of the term, and then, <laughs> and then transitioned into the stuff that everybody wants to see. S and he did carry most of his technique, not his themes. I mean, Jackie Brown, what we love about Jackie Brown around this table, it's not present in his later films in its style, but the technique, his dialogue, his choreography are absolutely all present. Yeah. No, I, and I'd have to say some, like, my favorite parts of, like, the films after Kill Bill, including an after, after yeah. Kill Bill, are the parts that very much evoke this previous, you know, this first part of his career? You know, the first, the interrogation scene in Inglorious Bastards, um, the 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 um, uh, his brother Kill Bill's brother sequences in the first in the first part of Kill Bill Part mm -hmm. Two. Michael Madsen, yeah, Michael Madsen's character yeah. in that. I mean, that's some of my favorite stuff that he's done in the uh, kind of earlier uh, in that second part. But once again, I think those elements uh, that make those scenes and those moments really land for me are, like I said, kind of evoke this this first part of his career. Do we want to hop in, or does anybody want to put any more opening thoughts on the table before we run through? Um, I'm, ready to, I'm good to go, but I'm, I mean, I'll entertain. 
Yeah, we can we can we can we can hop in here. Um, so one of the one of the things that I noticed most because this is my favorite Tarantino film. I I love everything about this film basically. <laughs> um, one of the things we see in this film, which we definitely don't see in the later period of uh, Tarantino films, and you know he isn't even necessarily reflective in stuff like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, is we see an ec- like. We see some restraint on Tarantino's behalf because, like we said, all of the usual Tarantino tropes are in this film, but they're exercised with a level of restraint that I don't think he ever used after this film. And um, part of this might be because it was an adaptation. Uh, I don't know how constrained that what what kind of constraint that put on his writing process. Yeah, that was kind of why I was curious if either of you had read the novel to this, because even though this was written for screen by Tarantino, all of his other movies are entirely his vision from yeah. top to bottom. This yeah. is the only one where he technically had artistic constraint of any kind. Well, yeah. and it's also, I but, the, but in the novel, uh, which I have read, I haven't read it recently, but uh, when I was going through my pulp Elmore Leonard <laughs> <laughs> Carl Hyacinth phase in the late 90s after getting through Vonnegut, um, the the rum punch, um, Jackie Brown's character in that novel is white, and the focus is not entirely on her as well. Okay. There's large Max Cherry plays a larger role in the novel than he does in the film itself, but he changes the, the 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 race of the main character. Not to like say that that's important, but the I think that's important. Okay, it, well, absolutely. <laughs> but then also, like it, you do feel that like there is this is and does have like this Elmore Leonard like quality to it. The like the semi ensemble cast, the kind of the pacing, yeah, the lead is up, very Elmore Leonard style. Well, and it has kind of the like heist like elements from. Uh, 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 you know, like uh, this can be like Jackie Brown's Eleven or something like that. You know, like where there's like a gather, not like a, a purposeful gathering together of a team, but a confluence of different actors all focusing in on a single heist-like moment, and then we play well, out. And then the basically everyone thereafter. gets wound up, and everything falls apart at the end. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of classic for how like Elmore Leonard novels tend to go for them. Yeah. These like odd, disparate parts, and then they all come together in a, in a kind of climax, and then it. It's never usually, plays out the it's way usually you see a clusterfuck. At it's the good. End. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong; like they're they're fun and good novels. It's a slow read. burn clusterfuck. Well, oh, I, well, it's a good rising tension thing oh, as well. Yeah, excuse sorry. me. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. Oh, so okay. With with that said, uh, you know, because I was leading into kind of kicking this off is um, we all know that Tarantino is very very fond of monologues, mm-hmm. very prominent yes. in all of his films, and this film is no different. This movie starts off with a monologue of Samuel L. Jackson's character, Ordell. Oh, I didn't want to go. Let's let's okay. let, let's back up and just cover the very, very first. It's not even a scene. It's just the credit the roll. The credit roll? Mm-hmm. Okay. The credit roll, which is in some ways the laziest and in other ways the most technically complex way to do a James Bond-style color open mm-hmm. to a film. It's Jackie Brown on her way to her airline job as a flight attendant, and she's just on a walking or a, on a moving sidewalk while across 110th Street is playing, and the colors of the tiles are just passing by yes. her mm-hmm. in the background for about three minutes. Yeah, it's it's a long panning shot. Yeah, but, but it it establishes the mood of this film. It does, and it's this movie is 
This movie is an homage to black exploitation, which I know is a a genre we have not covered yet. I'm I may dig out something from the black exploitation nice. uh, pile at some point here. We haven't dealt with it. This movie is an homage to black exploitation without being a black exploitation film in and of itself. Like that opening sequence, the music he picked, like the way it has the panning shot, it even has kind of like a 70s washed out feel. Oh, the camera work. Yeah. The color, what is the name of that? It's the, um, it's not the tone. There's a, the color, it's not correction. There's something, there's something, yes. Whatever it the feels, filter. It yeah. feels older than it is. Yeah, and, and. The movie's set in 95 and looks like it was shot in the 70s. Yeah, and so right from the bat, we do get, we do get, we we open up in a a very kind of 70s black exploitation era feel. Like, he, he sets us up really, really good um, because he does draw from that, that, that genre of film a lot. Like, there's a lot of inspiration uh, from that here. Well, and also I think that, you know, when you look at Roses of War Dogs, Pulp Fiction and, and, uh, and Jackie Brown, I, I, for one thing, you know, Jackie going in front of that blue is, is gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Like, and it, you kind and of the get t- this. The tiles are almost the same colors or uniform. It's, co- it's a cool yeah. color, yeah. you know? And, <laughs> but once again, you look at the f- the first three films and then look at what comes after them. Uh, you're talking about like, there's the, the chromatic scale. I mean, the vividness of the colors, used in Kill Bill and then compare it to Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction and this one, right? There, there are blues, there are reds, there are yellows used in mm-hmm. these, uh, in those films, but they aren't just like this, like comic book. They're not primary yeah. colors. Yeah. They're no. not these like really bright and effect, uh, effuse kind of colors. And I think that's kind of like, you no, know, this where is we get re- this. This is real film. Like they had to achieve these effects through yes. actually knowing how to <laughs> it's a light physical, a yeah, these set. Physical light actually touched yeah. like film <laughs> in order to make this happen. But it, but I think once again, it kind of shows this like, you know, this departure point in, in his artistic sensibilities going from this first part to the second point. Where once again, another DBA, uh, another departure for him moving forward where once again, the colors are striking and very beautiful and yeah. yet not this like really hyper, uh, uh, Hyper intense, vivid chromatic scale. They're kind of all coloration. a dirty. Yeah, and it was well, just muted a li- slightly. Yeah, there's like a mutedness. But about yeah, it, it. it's just like you know we're grooving with this. You know, Jackie's <laughs> moving. She's moving forward. I mean, she's a beautiful. I mean, um, Pam Greer, who yeah. plays yeah. Jackie Brown. I mean, she is a beautiful woman, absolutely. And if you are interested in seeing some black exploitation films, what is it coffee and? What's yeah. the other one from the 70s? Yeah, just look up. A, oh, she's gorgeous. Yeah, she's a beautiful just woman. Look up, just look up Pam Greer's IMDb. And Watch any, a film and from the any, 70s, yeah, man. Yeah, anything she did in the 70s will most likely qualify as black exploitation or women in prison. And you do get They're this, both great yeah. genres. <laughs> but you do get the sense that this is kind of like a little bit of a love story. And you can tell I've kind of like been affected, you know, been bitten by the yeah. Tarantino love story a little bit. But it is uh, it is a very, very cool opening. Like you said, yeah. just gets us going. We've got the this really great music, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Oh, the, uh, the soundtrack for this whole movie is fantastic. <laughs> I, I would like to say I have a lot of those tracks on vinyl, original pressings. So we, okay, just nope. a side note real quick. We uh, Mandy and I went to Rock and Roll Heaven, right, the, the morning before this. And yeah. we were walking through that record section and it's like, the, it was one of the first... Albums on the um, on the funk section was the Delphonics, and I was like, I oh, we'll, get, "We'll get plenty of that." Out there <laughs> yeah, the it's movie the four tonight. guys with the with yeah. the pink background. Yeah, the, p- yeah. the little, little, I've, I've got oh. that vinyl. So it was funny because it was like <laughs> I walked in there, and it's like right first looking at us is the Delphonics. I'm like, "Oh, we'll see that later tonight." It's just nice to hear that as the background to a movie because when you pick licensed when you pick licensed music in a film nowadays, that's not 
that's not what people reach for. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's just it's just nice to have that almost as just a a breather from the way that every other thing is orchestrated, let alone um, how it's just assembled. I really like that music. It, it is like massively underrepresented in yeah. soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have now we go into Ordell's crib. Yes. Well, this <laughs> his is his Compton. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's got. Well, Ordell has has a couple of cribs, and we'll we'll get into the black lifestyle here shortly. But <laughs> his his first one is his Compton getaway. But um, okay. So what's great about this is we open with a dialogue or a monologue, which you know, like I said, in Tarantino world, that's pretty standard operating procedure. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing, you know, it, it, it's it, it's a fun dialogue. We mm-hmm. got we got Ordell is basically giving us a one man infomercial on guns. Yes. Um, playing in the background the uh, classic chicks with guns. Chicks with guns. Yes, Women. which is which is great on yeah. VHS. Women yes. in bikinis shooting high powered assault rifles. Demi yes. Moore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But here, I mean, and then right at the get-go, though, we, we have our, our typical Tarantino trope. We've got our monologue. But here's the thing. At no point at in this monologue or any of the other monologues in the movie does it draw on to the point of ad nauseum. I mean, he literally, he goes on about guns. He gets real excited when the AK-47 shows up. And then just... Just when we think he's not going to shut the fuck up about guns, mm-hmm. Melanie comes in and goes, God, just shut the fuck up about yeah. guns. <laughs> and and the dialogue then starts engaging the other people in the situation. Yeah. And I, I feel like that, it it's like a good omen because it, it exercises restraint right from the get-go on the dialogue side um, and really allows the movie to flow, which... Un- which, you know, if you're into it, it's fine. I feel like he gets a little into himself too much. But, you know, a lot of his other films, the monologues, like, he can really let them go to the point where the scene will drag down the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and that it, just it, doesn't happen here. Well, and then in that specific case, I think there is actually some almost spiritual self-awareness to the way that scene is constructed. Because the last monologue that we heard from Tarantino was Samuel Jackson's mm-hmm. in Pulp Fiction. While yeah. he was pointing a gun at somebody and saying exactly as much as he wanted to about his spiritual conversion, Samuel Jackson is now sitting on a couch, presumably mm-hmm. selling guns to his previous self. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and Tarantino has built an environment in which he is tired of hearing Samuel Jackson <laughs> talk to himself about things he is interested in. Yeah. Like it's, it's And the characters reflect that too because Melanie and and here's well our other two characters in the scene we have Lewis who is a he is a pot smoking oh, ex-con. Yep. Uh, recently played, released from prison. Recently released from prison played by in, Robert in De Niro. In one word, a loser. A loser. <laughs> yes. And then we have Melanie played by Bridget Fonda who is the beach girl who is Ordell's white girl. And yeah. that's very... Surfer girl. She's a white surfer girl. She's a white surfer girl. That is very, very important because, um, and this also harkens back from the exploitation era, the sign of success for the black man is to have a piece of white ass. Naturally. Um, that's like a very important status symbol. And Ordell wants to present himself as someone who is... Who is of status within his Compton community. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a scene when Lewis is uh, when Lewis is skeptical about Melanie's trustworthiness, and Ordell 
basically agrees with him saying that she's untrustworthy and she's a bitch and she's unreliable, but she's white. Yes. And that's literally, that's literally the only nice thing he says. That's the most important part. And here's the other thing about that is he can deal with the fact that she cheats on him and lies and all this stuff because he knows that's what he should expect from her. So Melanie's he, gonna be Melanie. He yeah. knows what to expect from her, and he's fine because he's got his little surfer girl piece of ass. Yeah. And that's that's really what's important in this equation. And uh they set that up kind of right from the beginning as yeah. well. Well, it's also um, funny too, because you'd think it would be like a sexual thing, but we find out later that, you know, she he like she'll sleep with other people, but he's like, Well, she's not even good at sex. Yeah. You know? like, it's not a sexual thing. Like it's not like he wants to ha- like like they like he's like it's like some sort of like conquest thing of like having sex. It's like the possessive aspect of it is kind of what's played up too. That, that's literally all it is, is the yeah. possession. I mean, he's willing to throw Lewis a fuck his way yeah. using it. Yeah, she's basically she's not any good at yeah. it. But you know, like it's okay. Like, yeah, he can go for it if yeah. you want. <laughs> yeah, so that that scene uh so then, that yeah. establishes Ordell as the primary crook and uh Lewis and uh, Melanie yes, as his and cronies. His, his crew of losers. Yeah, so we've got kind of like one element to the story here, which is Ordell and this rotating circle of, of uh loser criminals yes. that kind of focus around him. Um but then also, obviously, we get Pam Greer. I should also say that uh, the reason uh, that Jackie Brown is in this uh, is in a problem. The reason why she is there is that uh, for the plot v- device, uh, she's been arrested. Um, she works. That's for the Ordo. next scene. Yeah, it's the next. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. the yes. next scene. They introduce the next set of characters. Yes. the ATF crew, the ATF, and the the ATF man played by Michael Keaton, uh, Ray. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty strong performance. Forget yeah. his specific. I forget his full name, but his name's Ray, and yeah. uh, his. Bad cop detective that goes along with him. Yeah, uh, they, Appropri- uh, appropriately mustached. Yeah, they they uh, discover that. Uh, oh, I guess there is one scene before we can backtrace to that yeah. one though. But uh, yeah. they get a tip that maybe Jackie Brown is uh, carrying some uh, bills into the country right. for someone. Uh, who it is they don't know just yet, but they're figuring that part out. Say there's about oh uh, fifty thousand dollars here. What would you say, Ray? Looks like about 50000 from here. And they pull her into an interrogation room. And uh, they have a little chat. And Jackie doesn't tell them much of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does a good job being tight-lipped, though she mm-hmm. does not have a lawyer, unfortunately, which would have maybe helped her in these yeah. proceedings. But what's she going to do? She uh, Fifth Amendment, kids. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't. She got off on probation, but uh, she's still being watched. And uh, life's still tough for her. At which point, I don't know if this is a theme of black exploitation or merely of Law and Order shows, but um, <laughs> Michael Keaton plants, yeah, some coke mm-hmm. in well, the you bag. Can, you can never trust the cops. Yeah. No, you can never trust the cops. There's only one person you can trust less from a legal perspective, and that is black people. <laughs> so the right. cops, uh, yeah, the cops now have her. She is now in jail. Yes, on a bullshit charge. On a bullshit, trumped up, with intent charge. Yeah. On two ounces of coke. And uh, Ordell gets her out. Now, Ordell doesn't have to do much to get uh, Jackie out of jail. Not only because he's flush anyway, he's got that gun money coming in, but he's already bailed out another person named uh, Beaumont. Just, yeah, just hap- just just earlier that day, we uh, <laughs> we get introduced to our other probably... You know, primary character who is uh, Cherry Max Cherry, Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester, the bail bondsman. Yep. And uh, so, when you're in the kind of line of work that Ordell is, 
it obviously becomes very important to have good bail bondsmen. Yeah. Yeah. And good bail bondsmen are so hard to find these days. <laughs> Specifically quiet bail yeah. bondsmen. Yes. So so Ordell, you know, as Jackie Brown is is getting investigated uh, over this money scandal and getting, you know, fake drugs planted on her, Ordell was busy earlier in the day bailing someone else out of jail, mm-hmm. uh, Beaumont, who... When he's talking to the bail bondsman, he's a little elusive about the relationship. But we do find out shortly after this that uh, Beaumont is also, you know, has a long history of crime, is a loser, and is somehow working for Odell in a way that could be incriminating. Yes. yes. To, or- to Ordell, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. to Ordell, basically. Um, and so that's why we understand why it's so important for Jackie to be quiet because Beaumont evidently was not quite as quiet when he got picked up by the police. I don't, yeah. And I don't want to necessarily give away the whole interaction between Ordell and Beaumont, who, by the way, is played by a young Chris, Chris, Tuck, Chris, uh, Chris oh, Tucker. Chris Tucker. Tucker, yeah. Tucker yeah. And it's, very, it's a very great interaction and a great scene. It kind of happens between them, so I don't necessarily want to give it away. I mean, can we maybe agree? Maybe no, but there's to, some oh, great that, moments. There's some great moments within the whole interaction Absolutely. between him that I did want to point out. First off, the interaction between Ordell and uh, Beaumont is the first point in the film where characters start using the N-word, mm-hmm. which is very common in Tarantino films these days. Infamous, in fact. Yeah. However... In this film, there is a kind of level of restraint because that word is only used by black characters when speaking with other black characters right. for the most part. And this is and this is how these two are communicating. And it feels very natural. Like, that's how those two would be communicating. We got, like, you know, two black guys. You know, they can use the N-word as much as they want. Yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. I got a problem with small places. No, well, I got a problem with spending $10,000 on ungrateful peanut-head niggas to get them out of jail, but I did it. And how small was that jail cell, motherfucker? Look, man, I know I owe you. You have to bring all if this If you up. owe me, then get your ass in this trunk. Man, I want to help you, but I want to be locked in no goddamn trunk or no car. Um, I feel like he got a little, that got a little out of hand later in some of his other movies, but it was used very appropriately here. Well, I mean, it depends on where we want to actually uh, dive into this particular topic. I almost wanted to wait a little bit okay. longer to do it, but well, just we, to we say, can We can pick it back up because I had one other just point Just to allude to it, um... Tarantino has a uh, very first world white guilt problem in his psyche, which is that he adores black people, but is culturally, physically incapable of expressing it. (laughs) And that shows through in this movie in just a magnificent way. I was actually talking to uh, my friend Alicia, who will probably be on the podcast sooner rather than later. Um, I was terribly curious whether or not she liked this movie because she doesn't have she is not part of the demographic that Tarantino's voyeurism and fantasy that this movie delves into could possibly be targeted at um she's not a white guy she's like an anti she she is not anything this movie was aimed at and as a result there's a lot of there's a lot of like there's a lot of little sensitive moments (laughs) little tense moments um Picking up a Delphonics tape, um, puns about coffee, like these things, like that don't make any sense to people who aren't like super sensitive to the way that they may be portrayed about that. Okay, and I, I was terribly curious. She didn't, she didn't confirm it necessarily one way or the other, but I have a feeling that this movie 
unfortunately, despite the fact that it is attempting to be a reverent black exploitation film, is specifically for white people. Well, yeah, I think, and in, in the sense that, like, you know, some of the more hardcore comic book movies are made for comic book people. Like, doesn't mean that you can't necessarily like be like enjoy or 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 feel feel the kind of uh, engage with the film. In, on your own terms in the sense of like, you know, seeing it from dramatic action. Like, you don't think you need to be like experiencing the same kind of Tarantino white guilt that I share as well to a certain extent to think that this movie is fucking cool. No, 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 no. You know that's, what I mean? That's yeah. not what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm curious the degree to which that could affect someone's viewing of the film. There's well, plenty to go into. It's worth watching it no matter who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think that matters. I'm just curious how that plays. See, I kind of felt like I I kind of felt like this this film did pretty good on on working the medium because he gives he gives, you know, both the 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 black and white sides kind of integrate in this film to get, you know, the plot going and I feel like that they both are represented pretty pretty well. Like, no, I, I, I think it's perfectly, I think it's I think as it, reverent as yeah. anyone could expect. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of The Wire, where in The Wire, yes, okay, you know, yeah. there's, there's a dyke cop, because of course there's a dyke cop moving on. Like, The Wire does a fantastic job of just, it has all the stereotypes yeah. that everybody knows, and they don't dwell on it for a second, because there's stereotypes for a reason. We just keep moving. Well, and it's also important, too, that when you are going to deal with issues like that, are you going to have characters that take up some sort of, you know, that have a kind of stereotypical role? You know, if you're going to have a, a black man use the N-word in a context like this. Or an Irish cop in The Wire. Yeah, who's exactly. Fat needs donuts. Yeah, well, or, yeah, you know. <laughs> drink scotch and gets drunk. You know, like, there's, yeah. like, but, like, the, the part of the brilliance of The Wire is, like you said, that, like, the, there's, they don't use that as a vehicle for them, like, for that person defending who they are, yeah. like to anyone, like there's no like story contrivance there's where they have to, to like, prove. yeah, exactly, where they're like, you know, the 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 gay cop, the gay male cock, co- <laughs> the, gay, <laughs> the gay male cop, excuse me, has to act in a way that's masculine to overcome or fit in with someone, or, or you know, like or connects with a straight character in a meaningful, like none of that shit is is done in a way that is intended to, you know, create tension or drama between the characters like the relationships have that organic sense and in that sense you know where this is an interracial love story between max cherry and jackie brown it doesn't you know it's not contrived right it's not irreverent in the sense that it's just doing it for its own you know self-absorbed reasons but then it's also reverent in the sense that it doesn't draw attention to the fact that this <laughs> interracial couple might actually have sex later on. Like it, it, fa- it finds no, it, that it's happy actually, middle ground. It's very, it's, you know, and, and I wasn't going to quite touch on that relationship part. Uh, yeah. Yet. I but no, yeah, no, it was, no. And that's rushing through. I know. Stop talking about the fucking movie. Okay. Let's well, anyways, anyways. Okay. So about the, the Beaumont or Dell scene, there was two points. One, one <laughs> Second was. Second point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I brought up my first point. So number two is, um, is the structure of this scene and the use of sound effects editing. So he does some fun stuff with music. This movie is not necessarily actionist in an explosive type of way. Mm-hmm. No. Um, you know, everything everything kind of just moves at a very suburban pace. Uh, you know, like, because people are just kind of doing their jobs and going here and there. Um, but so, so we don't have a lot of special effects, but he does do some cool things with sound and mm-hmm. music. And the, and, and, this scene particularly does a really cool thing where there is a, you know, we've got Ordell and Beaumont and they get in the car and Ordell has music playing mm-hmm. because you'll notice in all the scenes, like everybody's playing music in their car and right. that always yeah. plays a big thing. Don't touch my levels. So we see, we see <laughs> the camera pay up. Yeah. We see the camera <laughs> kind of pan out 
The car drives out of sound distance. We can still Camera see it. Camera rises up over the, the it street. It rises the, up so we can still see the car moving, but the sound travels outside of our realm of, of uh, you know, hearing. Mm-hmm. And then it makes like a little U-turn, and then we hear the radio come back in as the car then gets closer t- to our field of vision mm-hmm. again. All in one single shot. All in mm-hmm. one shot. Um, and it's it's just like a really cool little sound effects editing thing. And I, I really liked that. And he does employ that in, in other places in the film as well. Well, and that that is synthesized pretty much perfectly with the other, Ryan just mentioned it, the all-in-one shot. Mm-hmm. There is a ton of that kind of almost arrogant camera work of just never making yeah, a like cut. Yeah, like long panning. There's a ton of that stuff. But this this scene in particular has one of the one of the most elegant economical uses of that technique I've ever seen because the scene starts directly in front of the car. It's like a close shot where you can just, you can basically see the front hood of the car. Mm -hmm. The car drives away, but instead of following the car, the camera just goes Goes up. up. Yes. And that is, gives us enough perspective to see the car drive away and go to a different area Without mo- without technically moving the yeah. camera, right? And I thought that was an extremely smart way to film that. Yeah. Okay. Can I? I got a little. I got a little. Yeah. I got. I got. I'm gonna go. Ryan looks excited. Okay. <laughs> so, when you watch a film, there the camera is the storyteller to a large extent, and the way that the camera behaves can be very important to the way that the story is told. In this scene, you mentioned it's particularly brilliant because. When the camera stops behaving in a way that we have expected to, or a film has kind of accustomed us to expect how the film and will the, the camera will follow the characters and how the editing will continue the story. When that breaks or deviates from this, you are left wondering why. Why <laughs> for three seconds am I looking at a blank, empty fucking street that the main character has just driven off from? Like, why am I watching this? And so you you ask and you you inquire, your mind inquires like what's going on. And when the point of it is revealed to you, it keeps you engaged. It rises dramatic tension within the film. And it, I think that once again, when, when you look at films that are able to exploit this and Tarantino, as you mentioned, is a penchant, if you will, for longer uh, film scenes, scenes that where the camera does not break anywhere and forces you to, to continue to go in and follow the action of, of what's being maintained. It reminds me, too, of much when we talked about Kubrick, how he will have these long shots. And I think really the peak of Kubrick's, um, the, the movement of the camera as storyteller, the peak of Kubrick's career is in The Shining, where there is like the way that camera moves through the in the, in the process of telling the story is integral to the to the overall mood and, and the way that that story is relayed to you. And Tarantino has several moments in this film where that is, where those long established uh, those long sequences of events that occur in one shot add to the point and the tension within this, right? There's another good one or another long, long stretched scene with Pam Greer in the center at the end of the film, which I'm sure we'll get yeah, to in just we'll a second. Yeah. But yeah, but it is just whenever you're watching a film and, and with when talented directors do that, I think it's important to kind of take note and realize what they're trying trying to draw your attention to and to how those scenes play out. And it's just a very creative use of the camera that is usually underdeveloped in a lot of modern well, like cinema I said, as and well. And it's good too, because this movie is, this movie is not necessarily as actionist as other Tarantino films. Like there is action. No one's arm gets chopped off. Yeah, there is yeah. action, but it's not gratuitous. It doesn't really like last. So, so he, he employed a lot of other techniques to help build tension. You know, like I said, like this, this being a key example, like, you know, this, this scene doesn't go down in a bloody parade of fucking bullets, but it still manages to build like a, a neat amount of tension 
by the way the camera, you know, pans up and we basically get to see the track of the car as opposed to just basically it's, following it's it. Like fucking... it helps keep you engaged without like a lot of in-your-face action. No, that whole Beaumont sequence, if we will, yeah. right? Him going, meeting Beaumont, the fucking dialogue between Samuel Jackson and Chris Ducker's <laughs> top fucking yeah. notch. The movement going up and and up to the room, then out into the car, and then the follow, and then that whole sequence is fucking very, very well executed. And it's, it's, I mean, it is or could be. I mean, if you saw that scene alone as like a short film, you know, you would, you would like this guy's got. Well, fucking and the other talent. thing is, and you would you would also understand the position of both characters, mm-hmm. like what they value. What I mean, you you get a lot out of it, like because that scene basically helps us understand what kind of person Ordell is. Oh yeah, <laughs> we understand pretty clearly what kind of person Beaumont is. You know, like you get the quintessential trunk shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Um. So after that, um. Well, so, okay. You don't need the $10,000 bond on Beaumont now. Yes. He's dead. So yes. And Ordell, um, for as much of an idiot as a lot of people uh, claim that he is, he seems to at least mechanistically understand how to commit crimes without getting caught. So, yeah, he is, once again, he's smart in a way that isn't betrayed, portrayed in a, in a typically smart way. I yeah. mean, yeah, once again, he isn't in jail. So if you've been doing this and making lots, making a million dollars or so, or half a million dollars yeah. by selling illegal weapons... Um, I'm assuming you have done something right up until that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Or at least learned from your mistakes. <laughs> and they have been small when you've made them, yes. So he moves the bond over to Jackie. Um, and once again, but in a good exchange between Max Cherry and Ordell. Yes. And then, Fire and ice yeah, and kind of conversation. Once again, and, and well, that's because, yeah, because now we're, because now Matt, it's fun because Max Cherry you know, Max Cherry is also sizing up Ordell when he yep. comes in because he doesn't know the whole backstory, but he does know that obviously when you bail two people out in the course <laughs> and, of 24 and hours, one of them has died. And one of them died. You're <laughs> probably in a position, you're probably A, a dangerous person, or B, are, you know, surrounded by dangers. So, you know, he he's very good. He, he basically, like, kind of analyzes... Uh, Ordell's character in these exchanges so that he knows the type of person he is dealing with mm-hmm. too. Um, and he does it in a very professional manner. Like he's, he's, oh, the he's consummate, been around the block. Yeah, he's the consummate professional. Like he knows the ropes. He knows how to gauge these type of people. Mm-hmm. But he's not willing to rat them out. But yeah, but he also knows his place. He's working on four years probation. You don't say. You know what he's on probation for? I ain't got a clue. Possession of unregistered machine guns. Yeah. Now, they're going to consider that a violation of his probation. They do consider this a violation of his probation. Yeah, yes. a bu- it, yeah this is a business. You know, yeah. like, this is what... There's a cool element to this, too, about, like, like the idea that he does this for a living. Like, he's a bail bondsman. Like, that's his career. That's his yeah. life choice. And to a certain extent, you could see how he, like, in, would like that kind of, uh, like, a job. Or but that he's comfortable because he's very good at it. Yeah. He's been doing it a long time. He fucking knows the ropes. Like, he's very good at this. And that you, But you get a sense, too, that, you know, towards the end of the film, when we, I think, I want to talk about the motivations and, and, and the, the development of these characters in the film, too, that it's something that maybe is wearing on him. Like, especially even kind of meeting with Ordell and kind of going through this experience with him, you know, like, it's it's kind of neat to, like, see what he does and see him in his element before he begins... Uh, you know, a development in his in the character 
that is, you know, kind of leads to the second half of the film and a lot of the dramatic action we see from there. Well, and that unraveling is about to occur because yeah. even when even when he's talking to Ordell the second time and is completely certain, even though he had a suspicion the first time, is now pretty sure that Ordell's a bad guy. He's still toying with him in the way that he's talking to him. Yeah. Um, but as as he uh, implies later on in the film, we uh, we then get to the part where maybe he starts having second thoughts. Uh, the love at first sight scene. Yes, oh, yeah. yes. So you know, <laughs> which, is, which is one of my favorite boy meets girl scenes yeah. in a movie so, anywhere. Yeah. So this is so this is great. So you know, Ordell transfers the bond over to Jackie, and Max has to go pick her up from jail. And we get another one of our long panning shots because we have the prison, and Jackie is walking this long, long hallway to get to. To Max Cherry. And Max is like a middle-aged guy. He's a little haggard looking. He's you know. 50s. Yeah. You know, he looks a little a little worn tour, you know. And so does Jackie, because she's a she's in her 40s. Yeah, she's you in know, her 40s. she's had some rough times. Mm -hmm. And it I love this relationship because it's very endearing without ever getting sappy. But we literally we get another one of the long pa panning shots of Miss Pam Greer just walking and Max is just looking at this beautiful black woman. Who's just slowly walking who's from the penitentiary to the front. <laughs> we get the music. In, yeah, we like, got the music. But, and the camera's very deliberate, right? Yeah. The, the, the framing of the shots are very deliberate and you see both of them in the same place of the frame, you know, so she's yeah. coming to the same area where he's being seen. All those little visual cues. Once again, the the talent and the, the attention to detail and storytelling Verbally, non-verbally, I think that's kind of what makes Tarantino. That's, I mean, I mean, that's why he's talented is you know the fucking dialogue, but also he is perhaps one of the you know top camera camera uh, uh, facilitators of yeah. the camera in storytelling of our generation as well. And I think that this it's it's a good scene. It is beautiful. Yeah. And like I said, if you didn't already find Pam Greer attractive, like yeah. I defy you, I defy you. <laughs> so yes, yeah, after so, two scenes of, of explicit <laughs> beauty of, of of Pam Greer. To not fall in love in so, some measure. Yes, and Max Max Cherry definitely, right at first sight, is thoroughly infatuated yes. with this woman in a way that he probably has not been in some time. Sure seems that way. <laughs> well, but that, he's a jaded motherfucker most yeah. of the time. But then, you know, so he picked, but the thing is, he's there to pick her up from, yes. from when she's released from jail. No, Ordell isn't. It's all, the scenery is perfect. It's like they're going on a date. Yes. Yeah. And he's picking her up from her house, which happens to be jail at the moment. <laughs> but then, like, the way they're, the, their exchange in the car is kind of that matter-of-fact way where, you know... She's, she's never met him. She doesn't know no, him. From, no, she, him I from mean, Adam. Yeah. And like she has, you know, she's been through a fairly humiliating experience. You can tell that she has been slightly dinged or defeated to a certain she's a extent. demoralized. Absolutely. And the way that he interacts with her is both matter of fact and yet sensitive. You can, when you, because he keeps his bail bondsman facade up. Yeah. And yet the way that he kind of has this so like semi-professionalism. professional yeah. With professionalism, the way that he deals with her and the way that he dealt with Odell you know, you can tell he's sizing her up, but yet it's it, there's a sensitivity to it, and I think that it's it's partly the dialogue, but then it's also the trust in like Robert Forrester to kind of be able, and Pam Greer to kind of find this the, a chemist a certain uh, chemistry yeah a certain kind there. of chemistry when they're just kind of just trading like do you have any cigarettes and it's like you know that, no yeah. I don't smoke <laughs> I've quit three years you know like can we stop and get cigarettes sure have you ever been to the river bottom I don't think so. Sorry, it's, right. it's a cop bar. 
Can we just stop at a Seven Eleven or something? They they exchange. Yeah, they want to go to a bar. Yeah, they're trying to figure out a bar. He yeah, suggests no. a cop bar, and she's like, "Look, I'm like a black lady. I just went to jail. The last thing I want to do is go to a cop bar." You know, so you, they're uh, you know, and like then the she racial meets some halfway. It's like, look, I know a bar near where I live. We'll yeah, figure this out. And she's got like this little bit of it's not disdain, but she's kind of like brushing him off, but. Uh, that isn't going to stop him. <laughs> <laughs> so no, he's got some persistence in his character. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, yeah, we keep moving on here. Okay, yeah. so so after this, you know, so Max drops her off. There's, you know, a little bit of an exchange there. He does seem genuinely concerned about her situation because he does know. He doesn't know specifically how or why, but he does know that Ordell is a dangerous guy. Yeah. And, and that she's connected to him. And that she's connected. And now we learned just how kind of weird and well, we already kind of know that Ordell's weird and creepy, but um, this next interaction where Ordell meets up with Pam after she's released from prison. He's been following or has been st- staking out at her apartment. So yeah. when she leaves Max Cherry, goes in to replace, Ordell immediately begins to and it's, saunter and on And the whole thing is creepy. The, he puts apartment. some gloves on, which, you know, he did before Beaumont, so that's not a good sign. It's bad, and once again, it's, a visual cue of what to you expect. You know, he comes in acting nice to Jackie, but then... Goes and turns all the lights off in the house. How romantic. Yeah, Yeah, before he starts talking to her. Like, it's... There's a power struggle here (laughs) um, that continues to play out in in a a beautiful dance. Because everyone, like in all heist and, you know, crime movies, everyone's got their angle. So we learn. And Jackie both holds all the cards and none of the cards yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, seeming the to cops hold no know cards. The cops know everything about her, but they don't want. They don't her. even know, or they don't even know Ordell's name at this point. Yeah. But they know he. They know he exists. He is a person, but they yeah. don't know who he is. But it is kind of funny, like you said. Like she seems very powerless, and we once again, there's. For one thing, you got to say that in their interaction, there's several sequences where he'll turn off a light and she'll turn it back on and he'll turn it off and she'll <laughs> yeah, turn it back on. Yeah, it's like this constant power struggle between the two of them. But it's also funny because the, the, the kind of rubber hits the road moment is, you know, she has none of the cards to like a gun pointed at his dick, you know, like, it's like, <laughs> like none of the cards to like severe amount of control of the situation. And you're like, okay, good. You know, like we're, this will resolve itself well. And so basically there's kind of a power play, you know, Ordell thinks that Jackie snitched on him and thinks that, you know, he probably may have to take Jackie out. Jackie assures him this isn't the case, but there's definitely some tension here because all these people getting picked up means that the cops are getting closer to Ordell. Yes. So he's on high alert right now. Yeah. Uh, just prior to this scene, there's a uh, there's a good just general flavor cutaway, which could have very much made it onto the editing room floor. And if Tarantino had been a lesser director up to this point, hadn't made Pulp Fiction, probably would have given the movies two and a half hours long of uh, Lewis getting a uh, getting to experience a dance. From another one of Ordell's lackeys, Simone. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, or like a, like any res- respecting black man, you know, he's got a, a, a handful of side pieces. You know, he's yeah. got the one girl in the apartment. He's got the girl Sharonda. out. Sharonda. He's got his the country girl. The country girl <laughs> out in Compton. He's got his white girl in a little beach apartment, you know. So he's got he's got he's got a few dime pieces hooked up around, you know, the vicinity. Yes. One of whom is Simone. And, um. <laughs> 
Simone is like a drag queen, but she's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) It seems her character might have been a former backup singer at one point in time. And the great scene of like Lewis in the chair while she's doing her little number for him. Lewis doesn't know what to do with his hands. He's just like smiling. He's like padding along. Rocking back and forth in the chair. And and Simone in particular, this even though they never put the two characters directly next to each other, Simone's outfit is extremely reminiscent of Jackie's. It's just incredibly gaudy. It is the same. It's also blue, and it's also a vibrant blue, but it's a flashy, revealing outfit. Mm -hmm. Um, And she is using it in a way... She is the completely unreserved alter ego of Jackie. Like, if we just take... I mean, it's it's actually maybe it's just a I don't want to accidentally imply that Tarantino thought about it this hard, but it's like they are superficially the same did. person. They right. are both black women. Yeah, but they could not be more different from one another. Yeah, and they're mm-hmm. probably about similar in age. Yeah, yeah. No, they're they're the same yeah. person on the outside and completely different on the inside. Mm. But that's what I mean, and it says a lot to their character too, because you know Jackie is one of these women that's shacked up in one of Ordell's. No, uh, she's got apartments. some fucking dignity. Yeah, like she has her own. You know, she doesn't make a lot of money, but she fucking works for it, and she's got her plus own house. benefits. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's hard after you get convicted of a felony. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. <laughs> but that that scene, you yeah. know, I I just wanted to bring that up, but uh, I. Really, uh, Nicole, you had mentioned there was a casting decision in this movie that you didn't like. Okay, so um, if you haven't been able to notice so far, I've been liking most of this film. I actually have very few criticisms of it. Uh, My biggest issue with casting, I think everybody is spot on. The Robert, the Robert De Niro character is Lewis. Man. (laughs) Okay, he's funny. And I don't, I don't, I don't blame De Niro at all because I think he, he, he played it well. I feel like the choice, though, was kind of like a goofy Tarantinoism, because you know how he likes to like revive people in kind of like new pers- perspectives. Yeah. I feel like he kind of did this with De Niro. It's like, oh, it'd be really funny to have the guy who's usually the gangster in charge just be the pothead the loser. Wet blanket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I felt like like it was. It was a little like too deliberate. Um, I it was funny. You, you had mentioned you had you had mentioned to us before we started that there was one person you thought was miscast, and I knew it was going to be him. Without yeah. because I I actually asked you this right now, not yeah. knowing what the answer was. I knew it had to be him because yeah. the rest of it just fits too well. But I just and maybe it's just because I don't know d- enough other De Niro that it it was okay for me. Okay, but I really like. What a wet noodle he is in yeah. this movie. No, that's what I mean. The character and stuff is fine. I just feel like like Tarantino was trying to be a little too cute by by hiring Robert De Niro to play that wet noodle type of character. <laughs> and 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 to De Niro's credit, I don't think he overdid it. I think he it was a good toned down, like appropriate performance. I just. I felt like he was getting a little too cute with the casting there. Well, you know who Tarantino's uh, first choice for that role was? No, I don't. Sylvester Stallone. That would have been worse. <laughs> the, yes, so, that would have been much worse. <laughs> that was a marked improvement. Um, that was, so that, he basically left that role open to do something cutesy with it, I think. Do you do you have an alternate? Have you thought about this? I don't. I don't. I don't have like a specific I don't have a specific person that I think like oh that would have been spot on. I just feel like I feel like like that 
particular role wasn't casted as strongly as as everything else. Um, I'd have to think about it because I'd also have to put it in a timeline perspective too to see who would be good at that point. I mean, but, I'm just I'm just imagining. I mean, and part of this again, maybe it, it just falls into the charm for me in a way that it doesn't with you. In in the same way that Samuel Jackson's character in this movie is basically selling arms to Samuel Jackson characters in his other yeah, movies. Yeah. I really like the idea of Robert De Niro in this movie being the washed up version of the people he was in previous movies. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean. I, I feel like they probably did that deliberately. No, I think so. <laughs> well, and it's also funny, like, cause David was saying is like, is there a better De Niro performance yeah. <laughs> than this one? And I'm like, well, there, there are different De Niro performances than this one. No, that's the thing. Like my only, my, the strongest thing I've seen De Niro in probably, I mean, I've only really ever seen him in a couple of movies so far. I've seen him in Goodfellas and Ronan are the two that I've got, which I know are not the ones that he's like famous for. Yeah, it's because, well, no, Goodfellas is, he's well regarded from that, but that's, you know, because he's not like the mainish character, you know? Yeah. And, uh, no, he's a little aloof in that. But movie. like, man, like, because I've wanted to do like Raging Bull. Um, Raging Bull's a fucking good one. intense, once again. Oh, King of Comedy. Performing. King of Comedy is fucking great movie too. And then The Deer Hunter, which once again, these are all this kind of like late 70s, early yeah. 80s cinema movie, like American cinema. If we're Because we went kind of hinting at the fact that there's like, you know, for clear with Nicole and I, there's like a clear enjoyment of this kind of like mid to late 90s American cinema. And there was like a high degree of very, very good movies that come out during this period. 77 to 81 or so is like a fucking peak period, another peak period yeah. of American cinema. But like, it's very good to like reference it and that De Niro is very good in this role. And in fact, he's, it seems that he is his funniest when he's not trying to be funny because he's fucking hilarious in this role of this character, this like half mute, de- stupefied yeah. fucking well, you character. Get, you get his specific facial mannerisms that he would normally be using to seem cagey and mysterious to look completely hapless. Yeah, like he does hapless he, and frustrated. He, he does it's the, fucking Like he's hilarious. not he does even that, quite sure why he's there most of the he time. He does that shrug that he's like, I don't know about this. Like yeah. he's got that thing, but you know he's an idiot, so it doesn't work. It doesn't work the magic it's supposed to yeah. work. Like I really like that. So like, but like to put someone of such like, like, so like high caliber yeah. kind of actor yeah. and then to have him in Jackie Brown as this fucking, like you said, like this hapless loser is <laughs> <laughs> so fucking funny. But then also it's just funny because like he looks, I mean, he's long hair. He's got the mustache. He's greasy. Yeah, he's fucking yeah. like got the like. He's got like the most inoffensive tattoos all yeah. over him. Yeah, he's got like. like they're not even barbed wire. They're like diamonds going yeah, around they're, they're, Yeah, they're, they're like he totally missed the tribal thing and they're just squares yeah. and, and rectangles. <laughs> like. And, and they're all armbands, which is yeah. very distinctly 90s. So, but it is, like I said, it's it's both an interesting casting choice and yet, like, despite the fact that it might miss tonally for some people, taken on its own, it is a fucking cool device to use in the scope of this thing, which is that, you know, normally when you see De Niro in a movie, you're like, oh, I need to pay attention to this character. And then when you see yeah, De Niro like in this movie. Yeah, like he's usually the strong, he's yeah. usually yeah. like the strong main but, oh, character. Oh, he'll be important in a yeah. very clear kind of gangsterish way. And, and, and then, then that feels no. so Tarantino. Yeah. Because that's, that is such a meta narrative to throw yeah. on top of it just because he likes movies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's very much. But regardless, that's so, a. But I gotta, I gotta just raise a question here. I mean, all right. are we going to be able to. Are we going to try to go through the twists and turns of this fucker or like as we go through this, no, or are we going to try I, to kind of head into some key moments? I think that's hit sort of so? what I want to do for the, I mean, most of, most I mean, of the plot devices, I don't know that it's worth breaking down. Like the end of the movie is 
an entertaining little clusterfuck. I don't know that we need to go into the details of how it breaks but down. But I feel like we we did a good job of setting up. I mean, basically yeah. we have our cast of characters, you know, like uh, we've got Ordell. The heat is on Jackie. She could possibly bring down his whole empire. And everybody is trying to come out ahead here. So basically the movie moving forward is Ordell trying to cover his ass. Jackie trying to work herself into a position where she doesn't go to jail and possibly comes out ahead. Yes. You know, and Max Cherry is the bail bondsman. How are they going to get out of this one? (laughs) So, but then... So maybe if the, we want to like the very next scene, just yeah, go ahead, let's, yeah. let's just there aren't actually if we take each of the uh, the the dry run and the uh, the actual run as individual scenes. There's only yeah. about five left, right. so yeah. we'll, we'll be okay just going through it. I think. And I have just a couple moments. That's I what I was. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, there's yeah. some well, good moments. The next one right after Ordell and Jackie do their first negotiation on Jackie's terms, uh, Max shows up the next day to give uh, to get his gun back, which Jackie lifted from his car. And Max uh, stays by for some coffee. Mm-hmm. Yes. Black, because yes. the milk went bad, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, and Jackie, in her first real, not merely just being neighborly polite, but uh, maybe seeing a little bit more of this, asks, Max, how do you feel about getting old? No, and that's that's what I mean. All of these, unlike most action films, all of these characters are like very real people you know like jackie like i said jackie is like a working class black woman in her 40s you know she was relatively good looking in her prime and that's starting Mm -hmm. to escape her like these are things that worry her like the fact that the cops are after her if she loses her job like she might have to start over again and as a woman in her position like that's that's a scary bid like you know she she doesn't want to have to do that again. You know, and then Max also, Max is getting to the point where he's in retirement age. He's written, what, 15,000 bonds yeah. in his life. You know, he's... Plenty. Yeah. He's he's no spring chicken himself. Like, you know, these people are, they're, they're just real, they're real people. Like, and they're, these are all things that play into their day-to-day, you know, well, like, but you feel it from them. And I like, I like that they are competent but not heroic that way because it yeah. allows... It allows Tarantino to exercise a uh, another side of what makes his dialogue so good. A lot of people will credit the wording of his dialogue and the way that it is pronounced as, and it, it's worth it's worth crediting for that. He does a really good job writing people's dialogue. But the thing Jackie Brown emphasizes, and so does the opening of Inglorious Bastards. So do a lot of his more tense scenes. Body language is a constant. In his oh, yeah. films, like mm-hmm. there are entire scene, there are entire scenes where there's no meaningful dialogue. Very early on, um, Ordell has Melanie answer the phone for him, and the first time the phone's ringing and Melanie's just like brushing it off, and Tarantino has to explain that what's going on because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. But the second time the phone, uh, so Ordell actually talks the first time, but the second time the phone rings, nobody fucking says a word. Ordell just gives. Melanie, a death stare yeah. from the couch. Yeah. And that's all the dialogue you get. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like like that's appropriate in that relationship. Like that's how oh, that would perfect. go down. It's it's there's perfect. another there's another moment. Ordell has some really good, like nonverbal uh body language in this one. Another one is and this is I, I like I said, I feel like these characters are so spot on. You know, because Ordell is increasingly getting more paranoid mm-hmm. and some some of it is warranted some of it is just his own imagination um but he's getting increasingly more paranoid so you know he thinks he's he sees that max cherry and jackie 
have been having some conversations and there's a great scene where Ordell and Max are in the car and Max turns on music time, the Delphonics. (laughs) Yes, that he picked up after hanging out with Jackie. So yes, he heard this song while listening to Jackie Brown, goes and picks this, this cassette tape up. He's playing it in the car when he has Ordell and Ordell just gives him this look and he's like, (laughs) I know you like the Delphonics. It is like the most incriminating, like, (laughs) like it, it just cuts to the core and Max just gives him an awkward, he's like, yeah, but there's like so much more that like Ordell is saying in that scene with the look that he gives him when he asks him that question. And and it's, it's such a great moment. And Max returns it with a, uh, what he actually says is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But his entire being is basically saying, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> so like, but what I, I got a pack pedal just because I don't I don't want to leave it because. Yeah, that's fine. Like Max, Ordell, Jackie, I mean, even to a certain extent, Lewis as well. Right. Yeah. People who have gone a certain period of their lo- uh, of into their lives to where the idea of restarting and losing what you have gained, even if it's not a lot is a very frightening prospect. And for those, I mean, you know, once again, Nicole and I are in our 30s. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jackie is t- a decade or so older. Max Cherry, maybe even two decades older than we are. I mean, the prospect of having gone through or lived your life up to that point and not having anything or even losing what you have already gained. Yeah. Like, the prospect of losing that is very, very frightening uh, because essentially it's not necessarily that you'll die, but it's that you'll have to continue living with that. Yeah. And I think it's a fucking cool motivation, which is that these people are in later middle a- in their middle ages. And yeah, how- they're, they're past the point where a midlife crisis would make some sense. And it's fucking strange, though, because, like, it's the idea that this is rare to, to the point where I feel I have to point it out mm-hmm. myself that <laughs> <laughs> that a movie focused on the motivations and emotional state of, of late middle aged characters. Yeah. That's fucking strange. And to have an endearing love story between middle-aged characters, I mean, that's almost unheard of. Well, and it's so cool that in the context of, like, a crime film, which is what we could kind of say this yeah. is, like, normally it's like I'm out and they're pulling me back in, or I'm in and I want to get out. And One it's last like, job. Yeah, I got a kid or a fuck, you know, like, it's all, it's the most standard well, boilerplate yeah, yeah, kind of just, shit. Yeah, boilerplate. No, plate, this is yeah. like, fuck this. I've lived 45 fucking years. I've, be- I've got a, a place with records you know, that I, cause I can't afford CDs and yeah. like, I fucking don't want to lose this. And that is what she will fight for. And it makes it, I think, ring a little much truer that this isn't contrived. Like, oh, it's just the kid, you know, the love for a fucking kid and, and his parent or, or even with the know, Max Cherry, it's not like some, like, oh, you know, some exotic relate, you know, like he's genuinely like. You know, his, his moment is kind yeah. of after he drops after he drops Pam off he he goes back and he's like I think I'm gonna give it up and you know yeah. she's like well what's this and it's like well obviously he's fucking been touched by 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 Jackie Brown's character but then also he's like you know sitting in a room waiting for a perp to come back yeah. with a stun gun <laughs> and I'm in this dark room waiting for this guy to come back and I'm like what the fuck am I doing you know like <laughs> but like you know it's just funny that that is like I said, it's so rare we have to point it out, but that these people are middle-aged characters. Yeah. And what that would mean if you were 50 years old to fucking start over again, I think is a much different prospect to, to you know, most people we interact with are in their 20s or yeah. early 30s and they're like, start over, fuck it, man. Life's, you know, it's the internet. I just, barely even started. Just start yeah. a new Twitter account. It'll fuck <laughs> it, you know, like, but man, like putting 20 years into something and then saying, well, I'm back to zero. 
Like that is a fucking much different prospect. No, and, and when you Jackie ha- don't even have the says time, that she's the energy, like, or the use she's to like, do that. That scares her way more than anything Ordell could possibly dish yes. out. Yeah. Like she's not scared of Ordell as a person. What she's scared of is having to start over. And, and it's and it's once again it's fucking cool that the 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 the. the what seemingly is more afraid is is, have, is continuing to live yeah. after that in that situation. And for someone with, like you said, with with pride and with a sense of strength about her, like that is and what so is, little else. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And like it's it's fucking cool to see not only a, a middle aged character represent that, but a, a woman yeah. represent that in cinema as well. It's very very fucking cool. And I think once again, you know, why Tarantino. Is is a very very good filmmaker. Like he fucking chooses good characters, he chooses good roles, and he executes them to a, a technical and dramatic precision that I don't think we deal with. And yet he finds relationships and angles that are just very very different and very very cool. And it's just, I mean, once again, like I can't, I'm, I'm heaping praise onto him yeah. for a reason. <laughs> I think uh, because I just part of what makes this movie so unique is the fact that it is unique in a lot yeah. of different oh, ways. Yeah. Absolutely, even for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next scene is, uh, Lewis and Melanie <laughs> failing to hit it off. Um, <laughs> hitting, or, or, hitting it off. Ordell's yeah. got business to attend to. So he leaves Lewis and Melanie alone <laughs> and they chill to the extent that Lewis is physically capable of chilling. Um, <laughs> smoking, smoking weed poorly. Yeah. yeah. Doing a bad job. <laughs> Blending in with weed, a couch somewhere. Asking probing questions about cutoff pictures. <laughs> And pissing off Melanie enough that at some point she just says, look, do you want to fuck or not? And um, because this this spark is not, it's not coming anytime soon. Uh, Melanie tips her hand, proves herself uh, untrustworthy. And Lewis meets with Ordell to uh, question Melanie's loyalty to the troop, uh, at which point we've we've already explained, uh, we explained earlier. That the uh, most important thing about Melody is that she's white. Yes, and everything else is just baggage you deal with. Acceptable. <laughs> it doesn't quite outbalance the other side of the scale. Um, and that's just how it is. Um, so they set up the hustle. The ATF people um, know about one plan. Jackie knows about another. Ordell knows about another. We've got four parties by the time everything gets going. But um, the next scene is essentially the dry run. Yes. Um, where... They, uh, they don't mark any bills, but they just verify what's going down. And the dry run is basically Jackie's going to bring some money back. They're going to do the switcheroo. And then the cops are going to, you know, bust, uh, bust um, Ordell. The, yeah. The, well, the they pat- want to do they patsy. They you know, so contrived can, a plan so that they have a patsy so that Ordell doesn't get so caught. So, you know, the, we've got our big, you know, there's a big switcheroo and everyone's got their place. The and, switcheroo. Yeah. And Jackie doesn't merely like coordinate this she actually establishes the plan to a large degree this comes back to ordell have ordell's talents being quite deep but apparently not very like wide because his it apparently never occurred to him to not have jackie just hand him the money yeah like she had to contrive this idea of stopping in at the mall and trading bags with a third party uh because ordell had never actually like thought to do that she he apparently he she implies that jackie has actually been delivering him the money yeah um so she has to she has to do his grunt work for him so that he can rip so that she can rip him and the atf people off um and then those shenanigans go down yeah so we do our dry run you know everything goes okay and then and then the day of action comes and this is fun because it's 
it's so it's a very like slow movie. It's like I said, it's, it's the not, slowest car crash in history. It's not <laughs> it's not really actionist. Like right from the get go, Melody is hold Melanie's holding everything up because she's not ready and she's yeah. not dressed yet. Like And uh, Lewis has to assert an authority the, he can't wield. There's there okay, they're driving to the scene in a VW bus, which is like the slowest car you could take. And I want okay, another just like moment. So as we're as we're doing the real the real switcheroo, you know, everyone's driving to the mall in their positions. And yet again, it's that music thing. Like, you know, every single person has like, you know, the soundtrack to their life playing in the car that yes. they're taking yeah. to the mall. <laughs> and then as we're switching from different cars, seeing the different people make it to their destination, you know, we keep swapping out music. Jackie and- Brown's got <laughs> basically secret agent music yeah. going on, not only in her car, but like her outfit. She goes, she's got like shades yeah. on and there's, there's actually a fantastic scene where she stops by Ordell ha- Ordell's house before it starts. She's in like this red one piece and uh, she rings the, uh, she rings the ringer and Ordell's like, who's this? And Jackie Brown leans down and goes, yeah. Jackie Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's like establishing her mood for the rest of this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then, and then like the VW bus that Melanie and Lewis are driving to the mall in, you know, she's playing some surfer music and Lewis is like, turn that shit down. And they're fucking bickering like yeah. an 80, like, you know, couple, like a couple in their 80s. Um, but it's just great. So we have like this long sequence of everyone driving to the mall just to get going. <laughs> so, by the way, so California, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, so California. Setting appropriate. I'm telling you. The Del Amo Mall. Um, I mean, we can open it up at this point. That covers, um, that covers up to the resolution of it. Jackie walks away. Jackie doesn't walk away with the money, but uh, Max walks away with the money. Jackie pretends like she got robbed. Um, Ray comes out. One of the, what must just have been a bitch of a scene to shoot. They follow Jackie, not like from the side, but actually facing her directly. Mm -hmm. While she's walking from an escalator past about through one shop, yeah. past 16 other ones, and it's all one camera shot, yep. and there are bystanders everywhere, so they had to get, like, 200 extras for this scene <laughs> to make this work, and probably shut down a mall for 18 takes so that the camera is steady enough to make this work. <laughs> yep. There's sound going on, and just to, like, top it off as just kind of, like, basically a middle finger to whoever was... Uh, staring at the scene wondering how in the world this could have possibly been pulled off with any facility, the camera spins around Jackie three times (laughs) Mm -hmm. before the scene ends. Yeah. Just to prove how much better the camera guy is than you are at this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That scene's pretty funny. Yeah. Once again, one of those where the the staging is very deliberate. There's no cuts in the action. Nope. As we go through it, we, we see right the as tension. She, and it starts right as she comes out of the dressing room. And yes. then she makes the transaction. There's, there's one cut like, there for the escalator. But okay. other than that, yeah. yeah. It's, but it's fucking, once again, it, it holds us in that scene. It doesn't let us go. Yeah. Right? We want that. And that's part of the thing, too, is that you kind of, you half want the release, right? You're like, well, fucking get to the action. And yeah. you, you think it's because they're not being economical in storytelling. But you 
you, what I think most people misinterpret is that they want this, they want the resolution to happen and he's not going to let you go. He's going to hold you in this moment as she, like I said, deliberately walks yeah. down into this well, area. Well, because at this point, you know, we know that everybody has their own plan, but we don't, you know, they haven't divulged. We don't divulged, everything's gone out to full Well, yeah, they haven't either. divulged exactly how this plan is going. Because, you know, Max makes the comment, he's like, well, I think this plan might work if uh, she can handle the police correctly. But we don't know exactly what handling the police correctly means right. at that point, which no. is why the scene... You know, she starts getting she starts getting agitated and she starts working herself up. And then we realize that this is all because she has to, like, basically play up this whole situation to the cops. That something's yeah. gone wrong. Yeah. And in fact, some things have gone wrong. And some things have gone <laughs> yeah. wrong. Yeah. And we don't. But like you said, we don't know exactly what has gone wrong. There's like you said, there's a it's kind of a three cut take about e each person's perspective on the same incident of her in the dressing room and then leaving the the the, the store, the department store. Yeah. Um, it's like I said, it's 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 definitely executed and easily to, easy to fuck up. And one of those cuts involves uh, Lewis's. Uh Coming into his own as a character. Yeah, okay, so this is probably, yeah, the, the best and most, like, jaw-dropping scene in the whole movie is <laughs> right after Melanie and Lewis, you know, because they, they're, they're supposed to be the ones handing off, so she grabs what she thinks is the bag with all the money out of the dressing room, and her and Lewis, who have already... Not been getting along up and until like this yelling point. at each other beforehand. Like I and said, Melanie already caused him to be late. He doesn't like the music. They've been yelling, and so she just starts taunting him as they're walking around. He can't find, you yeah. know, they're in the middle of a heist. He can't find his car Where they at park the mall. The car in the mall. <laughs> so they're like circling the mall parking lot, and then right there and then he tells Melanie to shut up. She says one thing, and he just. Flat out shoots her. Yeah. Just turns around and, and shoots him twice. Shoots, shoots her, twice. which is like probably the most, like, like this is the most this character has done at all in the whole movie. Yes. Like this guy barely got off the couch the whole rest of the movie, and, and then just and the on a dime, bam, Melody's gone. Her. I mean, it's not. He's probably been thinking it for a while, and in the <laughs> aftermath, in the aftermath, he's like muttering to himself, like. I told you I was gonna. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty proud word. of himself. Was, like, yeah. no, there's it was, it was a little smug self-satisfaction yeah. going on yeah. there. But it's it's kind of funny because like you see like how maybe his like tight-lipped yeah. kind of simplistic approach. You're like, yeah, this guy maybe can handle himself. But then as the pressure mounts in the scene, oh, he just falls apart. He can't apart. handle a fucking woman like back talking him in the moment. <laughs> He's like, ah, I'm like fucking gonna shoot somebody. <laughs> But it's always, it's always funny because like when when moments dramatic moments in films kind of hinge on care on on characters doing stupid things. You normally hear people get frustrated about that. Yeah. Right? Like, God damn it! Like, why did they? That's so stupid. Why did they do that? And I think what many people fail to real fail to realize is that you know even in my own life, like we consistently do stupid shit. It's yeah. just that it's very low scale or very low level. Like nothing no, says that when the when the stakes are heightened, we'll suddenly become well, I, like master criminals. I know plenty of people that have lost their cars at the mall. Like that happens to people all the time. Yeah. I mean, obviously, well, doing it while you're in the middle of a switcheroo, you know, yeah. money heist has to heighten the situation. Well, and I just I really like the speaking toward the doing something maybe not even necessarily out of character, but just doing something stupid. In the heat of the moment. I mean, the way that it's played off, and this goes with every murder in this movie, because they are all, with the exception of maybe the last one where Lewis gets off shortly after for reasons that are probably obvious to those of us listening here. Um, at this point, he can't be trusted, but they don't even show the the murder. Mm -hmm. They just show Lewis 
shooting the gun and then walking away. Yeah. And it's done in such a fashion where your very real response to this, and it, this is actually very Pulp Fiction-esque, mm-hmm. like when um, Travolta shoots Martin in the head mm. and it's like, I think I just shot Martin in the head. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't, like it doesn't really register what happened. You could, you could see someone standing next to Lewis and going, Lewis, what the hell did you do that yeah. for? Yeah. It's not like, oh my God, you killed somebody. It's like, Lewis, come on. Yeah, like, really. <laughs> Can't you keep it together for okay. five fucking minutes? Which actually is exactly what Ordell does because after, after uh, you know, because uh, Lewis has to go pick up Ordell because he doesn't want to be well, anywhere the near the man. scene. They got the money, yeah. Yeah, so he goes to pick up Ordell and what's, what does Ordell tell him? He's like, what, you shot Melody? He goes, you couldn't have just, he's like, yeah, well, she wouldn't shut up. He's like, you couldn't have just hit her? Yeah. Like, that <laughs> was his, hit her in the mouth? That yeah. was like his oddest response. He's like, why'd you gotta, you could have just hit her. Mm-hmm. Like, what? <laughs> And that that, that seems such a good one because Ordell is running out of friends so fast and he's like, he's just staring and he's yeah. trying to have this heart-to-heart conversation with a guy that he kind of knew was slow but didn't realize was an idiot. Yeah. And it's, it's, one of, it's one of my dad's like favoritest lines mm-hmm. is one Ordell kind of ends that scene with. It's like, what happened to you, man? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your ass used to be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> So uh, yeah, no, there's like there's just such good elements kind of rolling through that, and it like you said, the the when the crunch comes in the film and the climax happens, it isn't handled in an uncharacteristic way, right? There's not like cars exploding. He doesn't like ramp up the the violence. No, we to don't. An unnecessary the, we don't. Level. Climax takes ten minutes. Yeah, yeah man. And the, yeah, we and don't the have beat, to watch anyone bleeding out for twenty minutes. Yeah. Well, the like, beat the beat the beat increases, but the song and the tone is still the same. Yeah. You know, like it like <laughs> things get heightened. But yet it doesn't shift tonally to where like we're wa- we feel like we're watching a different movie. The stakes increase, but nothing else. Exactly, yeah. and it's once again it's, it's it's a it's a mature filmmaker that can be able to do that. You kind of can see where you know there, there there's a lot of contrast in the way that things handled, and you're like you know well we were having like intimate moments a few minutes ago, and now <laughs> there's like shit blowing up, and I'm supposed to fucking like yeah. <laughs> believably kind of transition between these elements, and you know they don't he, like I think that's kind of one of his. Uh, one of the impressive things about Jackie Brown is the feel of the film. I mean, Quentin Tarantino in an interview I read, he calls it a hangout film, right? In a sense that it's not, it's, it's, I think he recognizes that it's kind of like consciously a film that is different from his other films. And he, he wants people to like watch this over and over again because he wants you to just enjoy being with these characters. Ordell, for all of his, you know, crappy qualities, I mean, that intro speech you know, where he's talking about when you absolutely got positively got that's to kill every last motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes. I mean, that's just a fucking <laughs> coolly paced line, yeah. and there's whole whole things filled with that. Like, I love that fucking Beaumont scene. It is, yeah, it is uh, it's like twelve minutes, like 10, 12 oh, it's minutes so long. Good. It's so, but good. it's just like him convincing Chris Tucker, who's in his like high pitched, squeaky, objective way. Like, yeah. that's just so uh, in the sense, it's just so funny, and yet I want to keep hanging out with them, and it's. Like I said, it it shows part of what is so enjoyable is not accidental about this film. I think it's very intentional on Quentin Tarantino's part to make a cool film with characters that you want to enjoy being around, that you want to yeah. kind of hang out with to a certain extent. Well, like I said, and that you know, you actually, you actually, you can feel these characters' motivations. I mean, some of them aren't motivated by much, like Lewis Mellon. I mean, most yeah, a lot like, of people I know aren't. Yeah, some people I, mean, I know aren't like, motivated by much you know, either. Their motivations are very basic. But that's what I mean. They're most not. The they're time. not deep. They're not deep characters. But these are also not deep people. I mean, these are <laughs> these. 
these are representations of some pretty shallow people anyways. So well, like it's it's I don't know. I mean, I mean, the depth in which, like I said, the, the, the idea that what motivates Jackie Brown is deep, but yet yeah. it's not hyper specialized or like she's like devoted to like some sort of high concept or of like, you know, some of these like ideals that we foist on like society, like heroism or humanity or that, you know, honor or something. Yeah. Like, fuck all that shit. Like this is all like high minded bourgeois yeah, kind of fucking okay. sentiments. These people like, are all just trying to survive. I mean, working people. They're just trying to, they're just trying to get up and, and make it the next day. The working people, the idea that you'd put 20 years into steadily building something and it can be gone in a fucking flash, like for working people, that's fucked up and it's yeah, bullshit. And it's a fucking grievance that I think a lot of people have that you know when we talk about the high, like the high-minded ideals yes. of what characters are supposed to be about i mean i like them just as much as everybody else but at the same time there has to be a space and when we are able to combine the higher ideals to this kind of core motivating principles that's motivating characters in jackie brown i think that's when it does it best and jackie brown he kind of has distilled it to that element and that is also very very enjoyable to me as well and i think it's it, partly because it is seemingly so rare like i said most of the time when it's a crime novel it's getting in and being brought out or being in and trying to get out and it's always about it's either revenge or protecting people you love either a hot woman or a young kid yeah, yeah there's an impressive lack of revenge in this movie frankly yes there is that's that's <laughs> the, the core motivation of, yeah. of a character projecting yeah. themselves into and, the story and that's it's it's funny i you you more or less said it, but I'll summarize it yeah, anyway. Thank you, yeah. Is the uh, the machinery that everybody is operating on? How we got here is thick. It's yes. dense, but everybody's doing what you expect them to do. Yeah, and that's that's a nice combination. That's that's a very elegant combination. Yeah, no, it's rare. Like it's it's truly rare. Yeah. Um, I think poignant is maybe the idea that like there's a kind of like when for something to be simple and effective, it does have a kind of poignancy to the relatability to a certain yeah. extent. Well, it's it's just so few so few movies without actually getting into the background or having a prequel or god forbid being a comic book movie <laughs> origin story. This movie doesn't it it asks in the most rhetorical way, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we spent the last 50 years of our lives getting to this moment and it feels like it just flew by yep. and now we're we're, we're here. here dragging a bag with half a million dollars in gun money yeah, and I'm out either, of a department store. I'm either going to jail, going to get killed, or I might get away with it. And, and I, might, yeah. I might get away with it and not have the money. And which like, you which know. is the final scene of that run is Max Cherry finally going into the dressing room, picking up the real bag and walking out. And the whole time, that one's almost, I, I think that one may be cut in a couple places. Yeah. But the more critical part is that Max doesn't really say a thing because there's no one else around. Mm -hmm. It's just him and the body language of him trying to seem cool and collected, which he's a fucking pro at. Yeah. yeah. But also trying to hide a smirk about how well this is going. Yeah. <laughs> you get the sense that even he can't believe it's yeah. worked out. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. It's very funny. Well, you, I mean, this is a guy that's probably seen and heard some shit. You yeah. know? <laughs> like, so the fact that this is working out, it, you know, it's he's actually... I think he's proud for Jackie. Like he's happy that like she came up with something and mm -hmm. that it might actually work. Like that's that's oh, kudos yeah, with, to you. With you know? no I, you don't need a soliloquy to understand <laughs> what's going through Max's head at this time. He's got plenty to think about. Yeah, and I think it's a kind of cool you talk about like the semi-white guilt of Tarantino isms in general, where, you know, we 
me, meaning you and me, David, as, <laughs> yes, as, the, as the white men here, right? We see Jackie Brown through Max Cherry's eyes. Yes, right? we, we do. Yeah. We Max Cherry that, is Tarantino in this. Yes, film. absolutely, and we kind of experience her and want her to succeed on that level the same way that I think that people who don't hold any kind of innate racial animosity, right, would would like the idea and maybe even have like a little bit of not necessarily the underdog spirit, but like the idea that, you know, that someone with her characteristics and the and the way that it's portrayed, you know, the fact that she is beaten down by the fucking police, like you said, you, know, you set want up her to and, win? Yeah. And, and and the way that, you know, you kind of understand the kind of structural realities of an old older black woman yeah what she would face in those kind of situations you fucking want her to win like you said that's yeah. that's an important character idea to kind of go with this in the film and it does like i said it, it speaks to through <laughs> us and in, 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 in and, it, eyes. and it surmises relatively soon in in a very very cool way but mm-hmm. uh the one last comment on that thing before max gets in the car this movie has one of my favorite hand gestures I've ever seen in a film where Max indicates Max, when he goes uh, into the department store, uh, walks past the clerk and goes, excuse me, I believe my wife left a bag on his way out to indicate to her that um, to indicate to the store clerk that he got the bag. He does this magnificently economical little uh, finger raised like he's addressing a waiter and then taps the bag yeah. and then turns around. It is one of the <laughs> it is one of the cutest little motions I've ever seen in a film. I really like that. But um uh, just figured I would point that out because yeah. I, I watched it two or three more times before we uh, came in here. Absolutely. Um the aftermath is actually does take a while to resolve, but there isn't a lot plot wise yeah, to go it's through. It's more it's more just kind of like working through like it's, what all the schemes were. Yeah, well, you know, because she has to give her story to the police. Well, okay, you know. we got to resolve Ordell. Yeah, and then yeah it's just re- there's there's a lot of aftermath. It's like okay, well, there's there's a little more tension in the room, and we need to to deal with it, and but not much happens. Right. In it. Yeah. I think we can kind of open it up to everything barring maybe the last scene. Let's call it let's call it from the end of the run until Ordell's dead mm-hmm. is probably one big thing mm-hmm. we can talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean it's basically just like resolution cuz we have, you know, after the heist we haven't we haven't dealt with everything yet. You know, Jackie still has to explain what happened to the police. Every People you know, getting bumped off in short order kind of helps her story yeah, out. That shit but got the, Yeah, the up. fact that they find Melody, Melanie dead in the parking lot with, you know, $10,000 of Mark Bills. Like, that actually helps Jackie's story along. You know, mm-hmm. they have to do the setup because, you know, the cops the whole time wanted Ordell. So yeah. they've got, she's got to, you know. So there's there's a lot of setting up and kind of like wrapping up this situation. Yeah, but most, most of that just involves Ordell unraveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In, including his hair. Yeah, <laughs> which finally frays. Uh-huh. Simone splits on him. Um, goes to Sharonda's house. Sharonda's house. Girl, how, can, how can you live like this, girl? This is like, some repugnant shit. <laughs> some of my favorite Samuel Jackson lines are said in that house. I'll probably just edit them in here because I can't do them justice. No, but, but it's also kind of funny too because you know Cherry's essentially acting as the go-between between Jackie and Ordell, and when yeah. Max Cherry sits down, Ordell takes the seat. And sits on sits on the chair sits with yeah. his, uh, sits on the back with his legs on the on the seat of the chair and fucking is like over top of him you know like in a kind of neat little uh, you know the two are kind of set in frame on one one uh, Max on the right and Ordell on the left and it's a good fucking interplay between those characters as well but once again like the little visual setup that we get from that you know Ordell definitely on edge in that moment yeah. you know 
wanting to know, once again, because he's motivated by the same factors, right? Like he wants his fucking money because he's put in the risk w- effort and... Um, it is his money, yeah, it is, even it, though it's it's acquired yeah. illegally. I mean, it is his money. And like I said, everything is starting to unravel around him, basically. Yeah. Well, like I said, everything he'd worked for yeah. is being taken from him. And you can understand that, you know, you might want to shoot somebody over half yeah. a million of <laughs> half a million of your dollars in particular. Okay, yeah, I found the quote. It's so... It's when Ordell opens the door, and Max is still cool, and Ordell is pissed that he's so cool. Yeah. So he tries to say something cool and completely fails. What's wrong with you knocking on the door like the goddamn police? You looking to get shot? Thought you might be asleep. You keep fucking with me, you the one gonna be asleep. Forever. <laughs> like, it's, like, completely ineffectual. <laughs> it sounds so stupid. But, uh, no, it's, it's a wonderful scene. Um, and... Ordell gets set up and shot by ATF, so all the loose ends are uh, pretty Ordell's much done. Resolved. Yeah. Um, uh, I always, I always, and this is just like a bigger cop thing. I always think it's funny. It's like how long and how much taxpayer money was spent to like get this Ordell thing, and it's like all they do is just go in and shoot them. Well, like, <laughs> well, it's weird too, because like, I mean, part of the job for being like is kind of like middle, like, because you're not like pulling people over or checking cars at the yeah. border, but you're having to like scheme your way to like figure out how to get larger people like i do have to say that uh, i i believe it or not loyal listeners i uh, toyed with the idea of once being a police officer oh god it was because i was entirely like i never wanted to be a cop but the idea that like you like set people up like like especially like bad people you know like i have a kind of like justice like like streak about me like i like the idea of like being someone who would go and would track down, like, people who would hurt... Like, I've always wanted, like, people to, like, swindle old people out of their life savings. Well, you wanted like, to be, like, the white-collar crime Yeah, I wanted division. to fucking catch people who, like, swindled old people out of their money. Like, that was something I could really wrap my fucking mind around, you know? It would A be, like, bureaucratic Robin Fucking Hood. A, man. Like, busting these people who, like, swindled your grandparents yeah. out of thousands of... Oh, that would be... That, might, that was, like, my calling if I didn't become a p- political scientist. <laughs> But, like, the idea of being, like, a schemer, you know? Like, this is what you do for a living, is you, like, scheme to catch schemers. Yeah. Like, I like this idea. There's an appeal. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But that's all. That's all in the past now. Jackie gets a uh, package in the mail Mm -hmm. containing about $450,000. And um, (sighs) so we get the final goodbye between Max... Max, unfortunately, doesn't doesn't pull the trigger on this one. He does stay. Because, you know, the tension's so... So Will they, deep at this they, yeah. point, yeah. you know, and he he decides, you know, because she wants, she's like, basically, she's like, I'm running off to Spain, you know, come with me if yeah. you want, you know, we can mm-hmm. we can do this. She's she's open to it, and uh, you know, Max, the you know consummate professional that he is, you know, tells her that he's not going to leave with her, but mm-hmm. they do they do share a kiss, and you can tell he's he's maybe. Maybe not thrilled with the decision he made to not just basically run off into the sunset with Jackie Brown. But again, he's a real person that has a business that he's yeah, taking okay, care yeah. of. Well, but, and but more than that, I think that was why I think that's why this scene I like this scene so much is that it isn't necessarily he's hiding behind professionalism. Yeah. Because he very much, and uh, yet this falls directly into the the little semi-voyeuristic white guilt side mm-hmm. of Max Cherry that Tarantino is embodying in the film. He can't go all the way. He is too scared to actually embrace this. Right. Yeah. Because basically the whole time buying the Delphonics tape, 
which is uh, the quintessential scene here is to clandestinely, like surreptitiously go into a store and, mm-hmm. you know, browse through. Yeah. Oh, this looks okay. And pick the this De- up. Del Phonics? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, he's, he's willing to toy with it to the ends of the earth, but he can't pull the trigger yeah. on it. He's just, it, it feels wrong for whatever reason. And he can scapegoat the fact that he still has a business to run. But he, he already even claimed that he wanted to shut that down. He's just not that ambitious. Yeah, yeah it's kind of funny. Like the, the idea of why he doesn't go with Jackie is, I think, kind of the core element to it. And there is this idea that, once again, for what motivated them was losing what they had. And for Jackie, it's not only that she, she loses what she had because she gains something a little bit more freedom. And it kind of relates to the fact that Max Cherry, what he had was almost – substantively different than yeah. what Jackie had before this trouble started, right? What? They, well, excuse me, let me put the phrase that a different way. What Max Cherry could have lost, he risked, in a sense, more by helping Jackie out and having it fall apart and being caught as a criminal, yeah. aiding a criminal. What Jackie had to lose was still very important to her, but was still much, she risked, in a sense, less, objectively speaking, than what Max had accrued and what he risked in this as well. And yet the reward for her is seemingly much, much greater well, while the reward for him is leaving what he, what a lot of what he had already built up. And I think it's a kind of weird dynamic, right? You talk about the white guilt kind of aspect to this, which is that she is free now in a way that she was never free before. And for Max, like, he was always, re- I mean, decently well off. Like, yeah. you know, decent job, it's able to have what he needed. Good hair plugs. Good hair plugs, you know? Like, he was all... In, so it's... <laughs> But once again, it kind of contrasts the two, and I think it's important to kind of realize that it's not that he doesn't care for or want Jackie to succeed, but has difficulty seeing himself, himself with in her, that picture, in that p- picture with her, yeah. and leaving what he had. And that's once again, it's you can. That's why I find their I find their their you know their relationship very endearing. Yes, absolutely. You know? And it doesn't get sappy, I don't think, at, at all. No, not at all. Which is really nice. As, but that's as a result of the sort of jaded, reserved character that they've both had to assume to survive. Yeah. I mean, if Jackie was any more temperamental, she wouldn't still have her flight attendant job, and Max Cherry is a bail bondsman. Yeah. I, <laughs> his job requires him to be hard-nosed. And to some extent, that's his loss because – if he was slightly more sentimental or he was slightly more ambitious, he very well may have pulled could, the trigger he on He could that. have just run off into the sunset with mm-hmm. her. Yeah, but he can't can't do it, man. No, no. and it's a good it's a good ending overall to yes. the film as yeah. well. It's very well done. It then also wraps on uh, across 110th Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. where instead of her walking, now she is driving in Ordell's car because yes. it was one of the few things that wasn't confiscated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, I like. What did she tell Max? She's like, "Haven't you ever borrowed a friend's car before?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's just again, it's the lifestyle that yeah. he just can't. It's not him. No, mm-hmm. that's what I he mean. Re- but he regrets it. it. He, he regrets it so much, though. Well, no, and and him and like I said, the the, the acting of Robert Forrester in that you do get that sense that he yeah. is he is he wants to, but he his can't. decision he wants immediately to, but he can't. in the moment. Yeah. yeah, he wants to, but he can't. Oh, yeah. it's good stuff. It's a great movie. Yeah. So um. Yeah, this movie is awesome. It's my favorite Tarantino movie. And uh, every time I watch it, it's just so enjoyable. It's just like, just go through it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just just very enjoyable experience. I tend to agree. I don't know that I would necessarily call it my favorite of his films, just flat out, because I tend to have a problem where the only movie I know is not my favorite is Kill Bill. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I have preferred every Tarantino movie I've seen to all the rest of them. And that's mostly a matter of proximity to when I watched yeah. the film. Right. I just, I like Tarantino's technique. I think he is a spectacular dialogist. Yes. And the, again, the body language is, he is so good at getting actors to behave the way that he needs them to. No, it's, it's weird because I, whenever I'm like considering or talking about Tarantino to people, it's like, I, I find that I'll take on different ways to defend him. Usually the kind of go-to way is I'm, I talk about him being like a craftsman of film and like where yeah. he's able to seemingly control the techniques of filmmaking in, in, in ways that are very, very well done and innovative and, and effective in how he uses them. But that last point of them being effective, I mean, the emotional resonance of this film also points to a kind of under an underappreciated quality of him, which is that I think he has a very deft artistic sense about him. I think he does understand it. I guess I think a lot of what is great about Jackie Brown was intentional from the outset. I think he knew what he wanted to do in this film and was able to mix that craftsman craftsmanship very, very well to accomplish that because this movie feels good. It just feels it fucking good. And like good. I said, but it doesn't feel, like I said, it... it it doesn't feel like Tarantino like got in his own way, you know, because I think I think Tarantino is now to a point where in the like, second half of his he career, doesn't yeah. accept criticism. Like what he writes. I think you told me this, Ryan, like what he writes his scripts, you know, like when he was writing Django mm-hmm. he, for like six weeks, he had Christoph Waltz just sit across from the table to read the stuff, but he could not comment or yes. criticize anything. No, like, he's, he has become a full-on auteur. Yeah, so mm-hmm. like he doesn't he doesn't take in a lot of criticism, and I think that he gets in his own way a lot of the time now. Um, and I feel like this movie is a, just a prime example of what a great filmmaker he is. Um, and how good of a product he can produce when he doesn't get in his own way. Yeah, I think that taking an overall perspective of Tarantino in it, this the this culmination, and if I take the the, the big three, I'll, I'll leave True Romance out, which is great for its own reasons. Um, when you take Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown, I mean, if I'm going to put, if I'm going to make a top four list of Tarantino films, those three are invariably in that top four. But the last, the second half of his career, I have to say that I do. I do like the the ideas and intentions of where he moved to, especially in the in this kind of like revenge trilogy, right? Yeah. We talked about this kind of unintentional revenge trilogy for um, dude. Everyone's uh, on that bandwagon. I mean, I, there is the uh, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, Hateful Hateful Eight. That's um, a revenge trilogy. Yeah, there, right that's there. a fucking revenge trilogy. So yeah, to Kill Bill. Uh-huh. Yeah, to cap off his action in the name revenge. Kill Bill, yeah. And, yeah, and Kill Bill is also so basically the later half of his career has been like. The revenge career. Yes. <laughs> and But like bringing it into where Kill Bill has, once again, we've talked about it's him taking past elements and reintroducing them. The this, the, the Western slash Kung Fu Asian uh, cinema that he is obviously a, v- a fan of as well. The revisionist, I don't, once again, if in the 60s and 70s there were all these kind of like, you know, war stories. You get out of like the longest day John Wayne war movies and then you move into the like 60s and 70s like Dirty Dozen war movies, which is one of my favorite war movies <laughs> of all time, where you get this like ragtag group of people who go or off. Like MASH. And, yeah, they, get, they, they smack one back to the yeah. Nazis, you know. <laughs> but then he takes on Inglorious Bastards. But then 
you know, where we've kind of had a problem with them too is the, and I don't, I don't maybe don't want to belabor the point, but where Django and Hateful Eight directly confront race in America in a very, very, in a, in an audacious perhaps even overtoned way. That's what I mean. Yeah, and it's they're audacious, but they make, like, accurate's not the right word, but, like, overblown, maybe? And it's and it's maybe to the point where <laughs> I think, I, I okay, not to get into it, but when I look step back and look at, like, Django and Hateful Eight in particular, I think the core ideas that he is looking at in Race in America, and I think his overall conclusion, especially with the end of Hateful Eight, I'm a fan of. But it's unfortunate that he has kind of lost the ability to to match the feeling of Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown in particular. Like there's there's been a departure mm-hmm. in his ability to kind of outset and make something as satisfying as Jackie Brown. And I think that's unfortunate because, you know, toying and not toying with, but dealing with and trying to comment on the larger issues that he's looking at. I see the genesis of a lot of his racial ideas being performed here in both to a certain degree in Pulp Fiction, but very prominently and very, very intently in Jackie Brown. But then in Django and and Hateful Eight, the racial elements are very, very abrupt and very, very harshly dealt with. And in, in like you said, in a kind of audaciously ridiculous way. And it does hurt the it it hurts the way the message story is told. But the point I find very resonant and poignant as well. I don't think there's a reason why and. I, I fully understand being on the internet. I understand how this will read in or out of context, but I really don't care what Tarantino has to say about that outside of somewhere around the purview of Jackie Brown. That's why I like Max Cherry so much in this movie. He is exactly as much voyeurism into the black-white conflict mm-hmm. as any white person can meaningfully contribute to the conversation. Yeah. I, by the point you, by the time you hit Django Unchained, it is awkward that a white guy made that movie. Like that is a problem because he can't say all that much about the black struggle. There is a point at which his view is uninteresting, I, and I think he crosses it. I think that's a limitation that people hold that doesn't exist. I, I you know, like I kind of am with George Carlin to a certain extent that any. Any subject can be funny, you know, and I don't find the but fact. That, it's the stuff's not no, that funny. No, no, I'm not talking about the no, I know, comedy. I'm not, I like, I really no, no, like no, Django not. Unchained. I mean, specifically to talk about to use the abuse of black people historically, the way that movie does is it's not over. I, I don't actually think it's over the line, but to draw anything. To try to draw the kind of conclusions we got out of Jackie Brown out of Django Unchained degrades that movie. Now, but then I got to kind of point back to you, which is that a black director would have never gotten the exposure, funding, or ability to make Django Unchained I, I either. Make a- I got I to gotta say that too, that there's, there's certain things that we that that society would not accept look, as being said by a black look, man too. And I look, think that's, I think that's part I'll of the agree, problem. Re- reality here. sucks shit. <laughs> okay. I'm not, go- I'm not going to debate you on that, but. It is worse off for it, I think. I uh, okay. I yeah, I disagree. That I think I think that his ability to raise those issues is kind of moving things. For, I don't think it's. Re- I don't think we're regressing on racial issues because of ter- ter- 
you know, we're not moving the dial back because of Tarantino's no. Django and Shane. No, 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 no. I wouldn't. But they're I also not. That. Yeah, but they're also like not a good source of any kind of social commentary yeah, they're not, or anything. They're not. I don't think they're helping or hurting. I think the problem is they are. Okay. They've they've exceeded their usefulness. Interesting. Okay. They've they exceed their usefulness in going as far as they do. I don't. I'm very much a more speech kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not. I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned with someone saying the wrong thing. It's just that there are a lot of things you can say that stop adding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's essentially where he went. I think Jackie Brown very much hits the cusp of that. The way that it, the way, again, it, the way that it tickles the, the little bit of um, just kind of peering over the side. Mm-hmm. That little bit of forbidden, inhibited adoration. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what a white guy can contribute to this conversation. Okay. Uh, that I think is universally positive, and Jackie Brown is like the epitome it's spot of that. on. It's yeah. spot on. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I definitely think it's one of the ways that they can contribute. But I was, I've got to say that we wouldn't really have known the kind. I guess to take your argument to a certain extent, we wouldn't have known the limits of what of what someone could contribute to that conversation unless Django had been made to a yeah, certain extent. I, I don't think it's bad at all. Yeah, it's well, not bad. It's just superfluous at some point. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And once again, I think too, that the larger themes to be getting into, which is that a movie that, <laughs> that had the, the, the desire and themes and ideas of dealing with race in America that like Django did and that Jackie Brown does. And that hateful eight does once again talk about him getting in his own way, not just in terms of the enjoyment of the of the films as well, but in the larger societal context. Because I think it's clear. I mean that it's clear from the last two movies that he was on a mission to kind of address these issues. And yeah. I think that now there might be nothing more dangerous than Tarantino feeling that he's on a mission to do something. <laughs> you know, like this isn't this might be where it's, it's at because he doesn't feel like he's on a mission in Jackie Brown to talk about these issues. It's, it's just no, Django but he does sh- such a better job of handling the issues no, within the Jackie Brown no doubt know, structure. And it's just Django Unchained is not good unless something else comes of it. Interesting. I don't think by itself that it does that. Yeah, I've seen some commentary. Uh, we don't want to belabor this, but I've seen some no, commentary no, no. about yeah. like Twelve Years a Slave kind of coming out after this as well. And if you guys have, if you guys haven't seen that I movie, watched yeah, that you gotta one. check that shit out. That's fucking. Um, intensely good and also too dear loyal listeners uh, The Color Purple is on um, uh, is on Netflix right now as well and that was another mid uh, a mid 80s film that also deals with this but also I think too what's interesting is that uh, the Roots miniseries is being remade at this oh, current yes, period as yes. well and I think that we're kind of rediscovering or being you know acclimated to these ideas and it is kind of an interesting standpoint to say that you know well why the hell remake roots you know which is a very famous miniseries from the uh, from the 80s uh kunta kinte if you've never heard that name before but lavar burton Burton from reading rainbow played the seminal character of a black african slave uh, of an african native uh, being brought over into the slave culture in america during that time period so you know it's it's always been there but it's 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 openness in this area you don't necessarily want to say that tarantino opened the door so to speak but it is part of a larger uh, uh way in which our media in a larger context is kind of grappling or looking at these stories in, in in a fresh light and i think that perhaps he has some place in that regardless of if it's, <laughs> i think he, if he has completed that position or not i think he's completely fulfilled his role <laughs> good so hopefully his next tool will be a little bit more of a downstep uh, in, in terms of his... Like I said, I feel like he needs a little more constraint. He should try doing another adaptation next he, time. He so needs that, a break. That's what he means. So that, well, that's, he needs some constraints on just his free-wielding, 
you know. He's been he's been on such a tilt since yeah. Kill Bill. I mean, Kill Bill Volume One was massively successful. Kill Bill Volume Two was massively. It's just yeah. he's been making too many blockbuster hits. He needs to chill for a couple of. And days. this movie is very chill. Yeah, he's yes. a little Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quentin, if you're me, listening to this, so, and we know you listen, Quentin Tarantino, we know you're a fan <laughs> of the pod. Look, man, just watch Jackie Brown a couple of times in the next coming month and just just relax, man. Yeah. Just get, a, get, get yourself a nice surfer gal, you know? and Practice what you preach. Hang man. out by the beach. Yeah. Uh, just to get a cool smooth groove yeah, going. man. Put on some Delphonics. All right. <laughs> so I think that goes without saying that's a universal recommendation around the table. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Watch this movie. Um, Ryan? Oh, God. Okay. So, um... <sighs> We haven't done a Western, have we? We Uh-oh. have not. So I was, okay, so I could just, what, 30, 60 seconds of your time here with my dilemma. <laughs> I can either do a classic Western, right? High Noon, Shane, Rio Bravo, John Wayne kind of stuff. I've not classic seen any Western. of those movies. We oh, <laughs> can affect my choice in the moment. No. But then we could go to what the kind of Renaissance, right? We can do like the spaghetti Westerns. Where we have a Sergio Sergio Leone of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I'm sure many of you listeners have heard that before. You've got Once Upon a Time in the West, which is an incredible film. Um, but once again, uh, it, it, spaghetti westerns implies the Italian nature, and they are very different from each other as well. But I've wanted to kind of take a different effect in the in the late in the mid 70s, early 70s, late in the mid late 70s. You get what we call anti westerns, which are westerns made by American filmmakers, and among these. Uh, High Plains Drifter is one of Clint Eastwood's early uh, directorial debuts, uh, in which case John Wayne called it the most disgusting Western ever made. (laughs) But I don't want to do that one either. I want to do one called The Missouri Breaks, and it stars Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. I have seen selected scenes okay, from so this, this film. So, but this also, but this film, and man, the Marlon Brando performance from those selected scenes, yes, was. Fucking absurd, but that's I. I'd yeah. expect nothing so less that's from what Fat we're Brando era. We're, yeah, we're gonna watch the Missouri Breaks. Oh God! <laughs> as, and just know that if you've ever heard of a western before, or if you've ever seen a western before, this really isn't like any of the other westerns. It plays against type so well, but I think it once again will be an interesting way to kind of jump into the genre and see it from a perspective that is just entirely different. So the Missouri Breaks will be our film, and it'll be our first western. Outstanding. Okay, nice, cool. Nicole Ryan. Thank you so much. Thank Closing you. thoughts from the movie crew to you. Good morning, everyone.